This morning we resume our series in Romans, and we are landing this morning at Romans 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, 1 through 11. This is the great treatise of the church, the book of Romans. If you were on a desert isle and you only had one book of the Bible, this would be the one that you would want to have. And so as we come to the word this morning, let's ask our Lord for unction and for illumination. Oh Lord, we come to your word this morning and Lord, we desire to see great things therein. Help us, Lord, open our hearts and minds, change us. And Lord, anoint these lips of clay that the word may be preached with power. And anoint these ears, Lord, of every hearer that the word would reach our hearts and our wills. In Christ's name, and everybody said, Amen. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, the word of God. The Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy is going to fall. Scientists travel there yearly to measure the building's slow descent. They report that the 180-year tower moves about 1 20th of an inch and is now about 17 feet out of plumb. They further estimate that the 810-year-old tower will one day lean too far and collapse in the nearby Ristorante, where the scientists gather to discuss their findings every year. Yet in May of 2008, engineers announced that the tower had been stabilized, that it had stopped moving for the first time in its entire history. Quite significantly, the word Pisa means marshy land, which gives some clue as to why the tower is leaning and was leaning even before it was completed. 
Its foundation is only 10 feet deep. Not much for a 180-foot tower. Now, the strength of a building lies in its foundation. The main purpose of a foundation is to hold the building up, keep it standing. But a poorly constructed foundation can be dangerous to its occupants, to the neighborhood, for obvious reasons. And the higher the building, the greater the foundation. But I'm sure realtors don't say, I'm looking for a house with a really good foundation. No, I need this for bedrooms, I need this, I need that. But nobody looks at the foundation and says, wait, wait, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Let's check out the foundation. Now, if you were to ask Christians what words would come to mind when I say the word doctrine, most would say, boring. We tend to be pragmatists who view the doctrines of the Bible as something that's good for theologians, but we want something practical. Tell me how to. If you want to sell a book in this day and age, make sure it starts with how to. You have a better chance of selling copies. We tend to skip the doctrine and move on to the how-tos. Now, the Apostle Paul, if he was up here and we asked him, what do you think about that, Paul? He would be baffled by that approach because he would view it as building a house without a foundation. In all of his letters, he first sets forth the doctrine and then draws the practical applications from it. In fact, the first 11 chapters of Romans is the grand doctrine of the church. And at chapter 12, verse 1, comes the turning point, therefore. Right? Whenever you see a therefore, in Scripture, always ask what it's there for. So, But here, there is a therefore. We started with one. And Paul can't help himself. He's going to give us this morning the practical implications of justification by faith. And he does so not as like some dry, dreary drag... He says, rejoice. In 11 verses, he says it three times. He says, rejoice in the hope of glory. Rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in God. There's two things going on here. Peace with God and reconciliation with God. He's rejoicing in the blessings of justification by faith alone. And today we look at four wondrous blessings that come from justification. They're like four beautiful walls built on the solid bedrock foundation of the rock of ages, Jesus Christ himself. That's why we sang the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. 
You and I are the church. For our life, he died. And so we have this new life and we have these wondrous blessings. This is a great cause for joy and for hope, not for fear, not for boredom, but to be amazed at the grace that there is in God. He says this, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The primary effect of justification is peace with God. That's astonishing. What's so good about having peace with God? Did we go to war with God? The New Testament tells us that we're fallen creatures and we have a built-in hostility towards God and we are exposed to the wrath of God. It sounds incredible, but our natural inclination deep down is to hate God. If it wasn't for grace, we would hate God. We might do it in a veiled way, but we would hate God. When we come to Christ and repent of our sins, the war is over. God signs a peace treaty. What is this peace that God brings to us? It transcends every earthly dimension. I remember going to school when I was a young little boy in the midst of the Cold War. World War II was over. There was peace, or was there? There was the Cold War. And we used to go to school, and I remember seeing the signs, air raid signs. And the school had a bomb shelter. Why did we have a bomb shelter? I thought we were at peace. And we used to have drills. They would blow a whistle or whatever they would do, and we would know to line up at a certain spot in case there was an air raid or Russia had dropped the bomb. We lived like that. That's not the peace that we have. The peace that we have is real. God will never draw the sword against you, ever. He may chastise you, but he's not your enemy. He's your friend. He's your Lord. And you have peace because the war is over. I don't know if you know, if you realize it, but people out there are troubled. They're in misery. They are anxious. They are depressed. They have no peace. Principally, because they have no peace with God. Peace without God is fleeting. People are desperately seeking peace of mind, but all in the wrong places. They seek it in romance. They seek it in material possessions. They seek it in politics. They seek it in drugs, in alcohol. They seek it in a multitude of ways, but nothing can pacify the anxious soul. There's a foundational anxiety in their heart that can't be quieted apart from justification. It's like a background program of a computer. You don't see it, but you can feel its effects. It's there. 
If you are at war with God, you are estranged from God and you will have no peace. The peace we have as justified people penetrates our innermost being. Jesus said, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. It's not a carnal peace. It's not a temporary peace. It's not a dishonorable peace. It is an everlasting peace. And unless people come to God on his terms, they'll never have it. And it's really probably just good business for lots of people. Like, it's probably where all the overtime that police have, and it's probably why they make lawyers and psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists, undertakers, and all kinds of various industries, doctors, because people don't have peace with God. What a blessing that your eyes were opened to justification by faith through grace on Christ. And now you have peace with God. The other thing, the second wall, the second blessing that we have, we should never ever take lightly either. And that is access to God. We have access. And that sounds like, well, uh, what's that mean? Can I just say, you know, eating my peanut butter sandwich, can I go, Lord, look up, you know? Can the unbelieving sinner just say, Lord, please buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my life, Lord. No help from my friends. So, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Remember that in the garden, Adam and Eve had access to God. God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day to have fellowship. But guess what happened? They sinned, they realized they were naked, and they ran and hid from God. God sought them, covered them, then he, they were cast out of the garden, and an angel was put there to prevent them from coming back. He said... In the day that you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will surely die. And we've been dying ever since. We die spiritually, then we die physically. The governments of the earth were established to rule by compulsion, like the angel by the garden with the flaming sword. Then comes the Lord to Mount Sinai. God summoned Moses to come to the mountain and receive the law. But he told everybody else, don't set foot on the mountain. Don't even touch it. Because if you do, you will surely die. And when they were encamped in the wilderness. The tabernacle was there and all the tribes were circled around it and in the center of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And later that was the place in the temple when the temple was built. The Holy of Holies was the place of the presence of God and only one person could go into that place on one day a year the great high priest, and only on the Day of Atonement. And he had to 
sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant in a certain way. And it's said that he had bells on the bottom of his robe. So if they didn't hear the bells anymore, they could pull him out with a rope tied around his ankle if he died in the presence of the holy God. We see the picture over and over again that human beings had no access to God until the cross. Christ dies and then the veil separating the holy of holies from the rest is torn in two from top to bottom accompanied by an earthquake. Now, beloved, we have access to God the Father through His Son. It's a big deal, right? When we come together for worship on Sundays, you have come into the presence of God, apprehended by faith. That's why a certain behavior should be had while we're together in the presence of God, right? This isn't a carnival, right? We don't do all kinds of weird things. We try to be attentive and respectful and worshipful and awake. You don't want to be sleeping in the presence of God. I don't know about you, but have you ever experienced the presence of God yourself? Some people have. Maybe no more than a half a dozen times. And there is nothing more exhilarating or satisfying than that. And indeed, it's not something we can hook up. It's not something that we can, you know, do a few things and run around like we're at a track meet and the presence of God's going to be there. God's really moving today. We're going to have a revival. We scheduled it. You know, It doesn't work like that. But the presence of God is real. And we must never be bold, or, I mean, never be arrogant in coming into the presence, although we are to be bold, right? Bold and humble. In church, we're never to enter into the presence of God arrogantly. We have access by faith into this grace. And we have hope. The world is like a boat on a stormy sea. It's tossed around. It can't get its moorings. We have an anchor for the soul. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? And we're stable and mature. And whatever comes our way, we can meet it in and through Jesus Christ. Donald Barnhouse tells the story about Abraham Lincoln, a southern soldier who had been freed from a prison camp because he was too wounded to return to active duty, was seeking access to President Lincoln to intercede for his brother in prison, who was the sole support for his mother. The White House guards would not let him in to talk to the president. He had no access. One day, the president's young son Tad Lincoln was walking near the White House 
and saw the wounded veteran crying on a bench. The boy went up and asked him, and he said, What's going on? The soldier explained that he wanted to see President Lincoln to tell him about his brother, but the guards would not let him in. The president's son took the man by the hand, let him pass the guards who all saluted, and brought the man into the presence of his father. This illustrates what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We were desolate and alone and wounded by our sin. We had no way to come into God's holy presence, but on the cross he tore the veil on the holy of holies. And when we come to him in faith now, he clothes us with his righteousness. He takes us by the hand and leads us again and again anytime we have need by faith into the presence of the Father. We come by prayer, don't we? To the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. The man of the world doesn't have that, but you do. You have access because of justification. Fourthly, thirdly, actually, we have trouble, don't we? Like everybody else, but not like everybody else. We have pain, we have tribulations, we have trouble, we go through things. But we rejoice as we do, as crazy as that sounds. How can we rejoice through these things? Well, it's a fruit of justification. We know that we will suffer down here, but we will not suffer at all up there. Amen? And we have hope. What you experience, the bad things you experience in the life down here is the baddest you'll ever experience of all eternity. But the unsaved person, this is the best it gets. What he or she is heading for is unspeakable. That's number one. Number two, the Lord God uses these things that come into our lives to produce in us solid faith, character, and hope. Right? Sometimes we have to keep going through the same things because we don't get it. But adversity builds our character. It produces perseverance. It puts muscle into the soul. We persevere rather than give up. Amen? I was watching this. I don't usually do this. You know how YouTube, when you're watching a video on YouTube, used to be that you could just watch a video on YouTube? Not anymore. You have to first go through the ads, right? And once in a while, you can get the skip ad button, which is a blessed button, right? Skip ad. Oh, yeah. Um, but not always. Sometimes it says, your video will start in six seconds. And it's like, you know, you're being dragged through the ad. But you know, hey, you're getting a free service. We have no ads on Mission of Grace YouTube, by the way. We're listener-funded completely. Um, in any event, I was watching this thing la last night. I was watching a video that I was trying to get to, and it was on St. Jude Hospital. And it was a pitch to give to St. Jude and, I, and for some reason, I watched it. I usually, you know, say, oh, yeah, St. Jude. We'll get to you and everybody else. Click. 
But this one I couldn't click through, and I watched it. And it was a little boy or girl, I think it was a girl, had cancer. And it was so sad. And um, in any event, they went to St. Jude. And as you know, St. Jude is also completely funded by donation. They don't charge anybody a nickel for their services. And they never do. Never did. Founded by Danny Thomas back in, I don't know, the 40s or something. But anyway, this little girl says, you know, and the story is good. She has cancer and she gets well and everything goes good. She's restored to her family. And at the end, she says to her mother one day, Mom, I'm glad I had cancer. And her mom's like, what? You're glad you had cancer? By then I'm crying. And why she was glad is that their family became so close, so tight, so loving, and so appreciative of every moment of their life together. Can you say that about your trials and tribulations? Thank you, Lord, for the trial. I had a pastor uh, in an old church of mine I used to attend with a few people here. And he loved to teach on the book of James. But he never seemed to get out of the first chapter. And we thought it was a big joke. We would take the Sunday school class, because he taught well, and we would take that Sunday school and, you know, take it the next session, the next session, and it was always on James, and it was always on James 1, and it was always on, consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you go through trials of various kinds. He experienced those troubles. He camped out on that because he was trying with all that was in him to say, look it, your mindset is warped. You've got to look at these things as that God is doing a work in your heart and he's bringing you through the trouble and the pain to produce in you perseverance and character and hope and given you, put into you the ability to comfort others who are going through the same thing. This only comes, though, to justified people. That's it. Right? If you're not saved, you don't see troubles and pain the same way, and you can't. You can't be expected to. Our hope is not in a trouble-free life. Our hope is in a glorious, trouble-free eternity. Amen? That's where we're going. And that's why Paul can say that these are momentary light afflictions because of the weight of glory. Fire outweighs them all. That's why. When I meet a Christian who's consumed with his troubles, I say to myself, that's an immature Christian. I'm not downing the person, but I just know that they're not mature of soul. You know... Sometimes we talk about being saved, being saved, being saved. Saved from what? If you're down in Guatemala, you might be saved from a bad back. You might be saved from poverty. You might be saved from illness. I went down one year and 
A doctor gave a man who was carrying sticks and coffee on his back. He was kind of like a C. And um, the doctor prescribed some pills for him to take. He took the pills out of the bottle and started rubbing them on his back. I think somebody that could speak Spanish said, Sir, those are for oral ingestion. They won't work like that. But he was happy. When he got them, he was rubbing them on his back, thinking that they were already working, and they weren't, of course. It was the placebo effect. What do you save from? Save from a trouble-free life? You know that ain't true, right? But one of the blessings of justification is that we're saved from God. We're saved from the wrath of God, and that's the biggest deal here. It's not that we're saved from the devil, you know, the old sermon illustration where the the hunter has the birds in the cage and he's going to kill them, you know, and Jesus comes along and gets the birds free from Satan's grasp. There's some truth in that, but the real issue is you're saved from the wrath of God. You're saved from God. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? Evangelist has a card. He says, flee from the wrath to come. And so, you are saved from the wrath to come. Reconciled to God. And someday, beloved, when your dash is over, I hope you're still solidly following the Lord and somebody's in your hospital room or death room, wherever. You got the praise music on and you're going to slip into the arms of the Savior worshiping God. And when you get there, you're really going to be worshiping God. Amen? That's the way to die. That's the advantage of the Christian. You're preparing to die every week. You're ready to rock and roll. You're ready to go. Imagine if you weren't. Imagine if we didn't talk like this. No time to prepare. That would be completely emptying of your innards, right? If I was struck dead here, I would like be like, I didn't even know, I didn't even give a thought to where I was going, that God is real, that I should be rightly related to him. Nothing. But the blessing is, you're, you can live ready. That's the only way to live. Because you never know when you're going to get run over by a truck. Right? 1861, there was a wild drinker and gambler named Harry Morehouse. He rushed into a revival meeting in Manchester, England, looking for a fight. But instead, he got saved. Six years later, he sent a letter to D.L. Moody and says, Mr. Moody, I would like to come to America, come to Chicago, and preach in your church. How many know that pastors don't like people preaching in their churches? <laughs> Moody said, yeah, 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 sure. Wrote him a letter back and said, yeah, give me a call if you're ever in. Chicago. Well, it turns out the guy sent him a letter from like New York. He says, hey, I'm in America and I'm coming to Chicago and I'm going to preach in your church. And Moody said, well, I'm going to be away on Thursday and Friday. Let him preach in the church. I'll be back on Saturday and if he messes it up, I'll fix everything on Saturday when I preach. Those were the days when they had church every day of the week. 
If you had church every day of the week, you would freak out. So would I. I'd have to preach from memory. (laughs) But anyway, so he preached. Moody was away. Moody's wife was there. And he asked his wife, he said, how was he? She said, I think you'll like him. He preached from John 3.16 each of the day or nights that he was there. But he preaches a little different than you do, Dwight. How's that? Moody asked. Well, he tells sinners that God loves them. Moody said, well, he's wrong. Moody went to hear him that night, determined that he would not like him. But at that first night, Morehouse again preached on John 3.16 on God's great love for sinners and Moody's heart began to thaw out and he couldn't hold back the tears. For seven nights, Morehouse preached to a crowded church on simply John 3.16. The final night, Morehouse concluded his sermon by saying, my friends, for a whole week, I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I cannot do it with this poor stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up to heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, if he could tell me how much love the Father has for the world, All he could say would be, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Those sermons changed D.L. Moody's life. He said, I've forgotten those nights, never did. I've preached the gospel since then, but in a different way. In our passage, you didn't hear it, but embedded in it is John 3.16. It's in Romans 5.8. It says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, or yet sinners, Christ died for us. You get that? That is an amazing thing. God's love for us is not based on our getting our act together. Hello? Can I get an amen? I can't hear you. Can you imagine if you had to get your act together in order to get saved? I thought you did. I didn't come because I said, I got to get my act together. And the guy that was witnessing to me said, you'll never get your act together. He was right. I still ain't got it together. (laughs) Our hope of heaven is secure because it's based on God's love that sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Amen? Our hope of heaven is secure because it's not based on anything good in us. And to appreciate God's love, we have to understand, realize, and recognize how deplorable we really are, how depraved we really are. I know if you've been in the church a long time, you think you're pretty good. Right, You can come into church, you can move around pretty good, you dress nice, you know where to sit, you know the songs, you know when to say amen, you know where the bathroom is, right? You're, you're pretty good, you got, you're pretty churchy, right? You're not like someone that came in like a prostitute would come in with a short dress and high heel shoes and you, everybody would say, what is she doing here? Getting saved like you, bro, Right? We need to know before 
we can go up, we need to go down, said Lloyd-Jones. We need to know out of what kind of a horrible pit we've been brought out of. It is only then that we can experience what we are to experience. It is only then that grace is amazing. Remember the scene in the house of Simon the Pharisee? Simon was the church guy. He was all cool, right? And Jesus comes to visit him, and you know, he is proudful, Simon is, because he does everything right. He never ate unclean food. He's always eating the kosher stuff. He tithed meticulously. He kept the commandments of Moses. He kept his distance from notorious sinners. He wanted to find out if this uneducated rabbi was legitimate. And he didn't offer Jesus all the usual things that he should have. But as they reclined at dinner, a prostitute slips in and starts anointing Jesus' feet with perfume and with the tears, wiping them with her hair. Simon saying, if this guy was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is doing this to him, what kind of woman is touching him. And Jesus says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. A lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. When they were unable to pay, repay, he forgave them both. Which one will love him more? The one that was forgiven more. You have answered correctly. He knew. He drew the lesson. The sinful woman who had been forgiven much loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. His point was not that Simon was a great guy and had little to be forgiven of. His point was that Simon did not realize, recognize, apprehend the depth of human depravity. And I dare say many of you don't either. Why? Because it is shown in your Christian life. I don't know. We have a problem in the church today, and I just don't mean here either. I mean through the Christian church. We have people who are lightly saved. They're not grateful because they don't realize and recognize their own depravity. You can't get them to come to church every Sunday. You can't. They just won't. You can't get them to serve. They won't commit. They don't do anything. You see what I'm saying? And I'm not trying to beat up on you. But I'm just trying to say that if you're truly saved, you ain't going to leave anything on the table you're going to risk it all for King Jesus. I still have a few minutes. One more minute. I only have one minute and I'll make it in one minute. It's good news, isn't it? It's better news than you think. That's my point. Remember the story of Karl Barth? Karl Barth was the Swiss theologian. He was a genius. Some of his theology was a little off, but when he was on, it was right on. And they brought him to this place in the United States and they stuck him on a platform and they were asking him all these heady theological questions, right? And he's giving them all these heady answers and 
All the seminary professors and theologians and students are all, whoa, yeah, wow. Then someone comes up with the end and says, Dr. Bart, just one last question before we close. What is the most profound theological truth that you have ever learned in your career? And Bart paused for a moment and started to cry. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Apostle Paul wants us to know, not only intellectually, but also experientially, the great love of God as seen in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if he died for you while you're a sinner, what about now when you're a saint? Will he not do? Is he not mercy seated to you? It's off the charts, isn't it? And I think that's another thing. We just don't ask enough. Right? You have not because you ask not. We need to start asking, seeking, knocking. Let's do some serious asking in our own prayer closets. Amen? Don't be afraid. You have access. You have peace with God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so blessed by justification, by faith, because of what the Christ has done for us. And Lord, your great love for us is shown at the cross in a creation. And now, Lord, through the sanctification. Help us, Lord, to live the Christian life with joy and with courage and boldness. Help us, Lord, to throw our hearts around the lost and hurting world and love them back to life. This we pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen.